I remember the first time I was conscious of Ravel. At that moment, I knew two things. One, I would never be as good a composer or performer as Ravel, not even close. And two, that I had to get the inside track on this Impressionism thing. So I listened to Ravel, to Debussy, Severac, Turina, Boulanger, Montpot, etc. No one thinks of me as an Impressionist composer, and rightly so. But listen for it in my music. It's there. I'm, I'm just not Ravel or any of those other great composers. But first... Do you want to be a pop sensation but lack talent? Do you want to be a singer but you can't hit pitches without auto-tune? Do you want top producers to notice you but your beats are lame and your lyrics are boring cliches about clubbing, parties, boyfriends, and Fridays? Try blonde hair dye. Why be an artist honing one's craft and releasing music with emotional depth and intellectual integrity when you could be blonde? What are we talking about when we use the term impressionism in regards to music? I've always thought of it as dancing around a tonality without committing to it, but that's a pretty lame definition. In painting, impressionism is characterized by obsessing over light and color to create moods that meld into each other with no hard lines or shapes. This is combined with visible brush strokes or something like pointillism, tiny but distinct dots placed in patterns to create an image. Isn't that music? Notes instead of those dots, but in patterns? Learning piano for me has always been more about shapes than actual theory or technique. Once I find a shape I like, I can carry it around all over the piano like a battered suitcase of ideas. For me, that's the heart of Impressionism. Not the thing, but the emotional shape of the thing. If a group of notes doesn't impact me emotionally, then I just move on, like a carpetbagger, until I find something I can connect with whether I belong there or not. I'm a musical opportunist, and I'll exploit any note or notes for my own gain. Lyrics are much the same. Someone might ask me the deeper meaning of a lyric, and there is usually something I feel, or at least felt, in a profound way that I am attempting to communicate. However, quite often, I simply think that particular clump of words sounds cool. Is there anything wrong with that? Words are like clothing. Sometimes our clothes communicate who we are down to our very soul. Other times we just think that combination of canary yellow blouse and violent green pants looks amazing. And does this not also reveal our soul? The most passive version of our sense of fashion communicates who we think we are, how we believe the world views us. It even reveals our relationship with the divine. 
Fashion might seem frivolous at first glance, but could there be a better marker of the evolution of the human race? The oversimplified version of this might be to observe if our women wear pants or a burqa. Can our men wear skirts without being stoned? Is our fashion still binary? Is our society progressive or regressive? For there is no standing still, we cannot help but vibrate with the frequencies of life. Is that life moving forward or backward? Is wisdom being found or lost? Are we evolving or devolving? Bob Dylan was not only the voice of a generation, but was often a timeless voice of wisdom. Dylan demonstrates this gift of wisdom in songs such as The Times They Are a Changin'. Come fathers and mothers throughout the land, and don't criticize what you can't understand. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. Your old road is rapidly aging. Please get out of the new one if you can't lend a hand. For the times, they are a changin'. In her book, Delphi, Claire Pollard observes that heaven and hell do not exist in space, but in time. Can there be more wisdom than this? How much more wise or unwise could any of us possibly be than in how we choose to use our time? Whether one believes in a pre-mortal life and or a post-mortal life, still our time here is finite and we will not get a second chance. Even if one believes in reincarnation, we still only exist in this form, in this point in history, once. Only once. As Mary Oliver asks in her poem, The Summer Day, what is it you plan to do? with your one wild and precious life. Each of our days tends to follow a pattern. Your patterns are different from mine, but they equate to something similar. Sleep, eat, work, play, repeat. The hows and whats and whys for your pattern are distinct to you, but we're all doing the same basic things. This is so much of what we mean when we talk about the rhythm of life, and at any given moment we may be composing, performing, or conducting our music. In all instances we are interpreting. A composer interprets emotion and purpose in order to create. A performer interprets their instrument, the notes on the page, the feelings those things bring to them, and the instructions of the conductor. The conductor interprets everything, the composition, the player's abilities, the potential and then real-time reception of the audience, the sound of the performance space, everything is communication and interpretation. Our abilities to communicate and interpret is what makes us wise people or fools. There is a steep learning curve to the rhythm of life. We are all forever naive about some subject or another, even with all of the freedom to study all day, every day of our existence, none of us could ever learn but a small percentage of life. I've been trying, 
I've always wanted to be a renaissance man, but I fear along the way I've become a jack of no trades. Google Docs wants me to correct that last sentence to jack of all trades. This is because Google doesn't understand irony. We can use Google to find information, but not wisdom. The agony of the human condition is to make choices within chaos. None of us interpret so well that we recognize all of the patterns of those around us, nor do we interpret them justly. We may stand next to someone who can tell us what the artist meant in such and such painting, but could they tell us what is wrong with our car? Wisdom in one thing may as well imply foolishness in another thing, as we can't interpret and communicate everything. In Plato's Republic, Socrates uses the example of a bed to make this point clear. Socrates teaches that there is the original object, in this example a bed that has been constructed, and there are interpretations of that original object, but none of those interpretations ever get it completely right. Most of the world around us is interpretation of interpretation of interpretation of interpretation until we no longer recognize the original source material. In many instances, this is a blessing, but in others, it is a curse, a watering down of wisdom to the detriment of the individual and society. The comedian Ricky Gervais once defined comedy as a normal person attempting to do something they are not equipped to do. We might as well define tragedy within that same phrase. And is this not life? The comedy and tragedy that none of us were equipped for this adventure? I fully reject the myth of the self-made person. Find me a baby that created itself without mother or father, or who set off on their own right after leaving the womb, an independent and self-sustaining soul. I want to meet this baby that had no help in life, that neither drank from the bottle nor the breast, instead leaving the hospital on their own, but only after cobbling their own shoes and tailoring their own clothes. There is no such baby. From the Buddha to the Christ, there has never been a child so miraculous, so amazing, so gifted and wondrous that they could survive even their first few hours or days without the care of someone else. And now, grown people that we are, are we so profoundly enabled in all things that we do not constantly rely on the help and goodness of others? If you need money, do you not depend on the paycheck of your employer? Or if you have your own business, do you not rely on the patronage of others? Or do you mint your own money, build your own car from metals you have mined and refined, plastics you have created, and then drink from water that you have purified from the well that you dug inside the nation of one that you founded? The self-made person is not actually a myth. It is simply a lie. Myths teach us truths through fantastical stories. What truth do we learn from the self-made person? Only that said person lacks the wisdom to see the interconnectivity of the world within they exist, that they are a single dot in a grand work of pointillism who, 
without all of the other dots, fails to become anything. The wisdom of Impressionism is perhaps found in the patterns of things that give us the sense of the thing but never quite becoming the thing. Like a world-class sprinter always chasing a better time or a world record holder who knows that someone will someday break their record, we are the thing, but we are not the thing. Who of us, after all, is defined by only one thing? At the time of the recording of this podcast, I have been married for 22 years, and yet I don't know my wife, and she does not know me. We are well acquainted, to be sure, but we are always in process of becoming, not just who we are, but who we will be. My wife is currently training for her first marathon. Last week, she did her first half marathon, and she did it in just over two hours. There have been times when my wife hadn't run 13 miles in a year, let alone a day. Not that she's an inactive person, she's simply never been a runner. 22 years into our marriage, she became a runner. I would have never seen that coming. There is often something of whimsy in Impressionism, as if the composer has allowed their imagination to wander beyond the confines of traditional music. Baroque composer Bach, perhaps the grandmaster of musical modulation, always takes us on a journey through several key changes that are so effortless and gently twisting and turning that the casual listener is forgiven for not knowing we've gone anywhere. Yet, Bach always ties everything up in little cadences for us so that we've had a definitive beginning and ending. Bach is a monotheist and that is always evident in his music as his compositions ascend and descend and modulate but always within an absolutist's mindset. If I listen to impressionist composer Severac's piano masterpiece Cerdania, however, I hear music that has goals and structures, but it doesn't seem to mind if it gets there or not, like a child skipping down the road, daydreaming on a summer's day. In Impressionism, there seems to always be the question, what if? What if this isn't the chord we thought it was, or the key we thought we were in? As if the composer began with a brand new Lego set, but quickly tossed aside the building instructions and just started connecting the blocks together to see what might come of it. I cannot help but ponder all the ways that life has deceived me, or that I have deceived others, in good ways and bad. When I became a father for the first time, my child was stillborn. I felt no less a father, even though the child I held in my arms would never know life outside the womb. When my next child was born, they refused to eat and were colic for six months. For the first two weeks, my wife pumped her breast milk and I would connect a tube to a syringe full of my wife's milk and tape the tube to my pinky and try to help our baby learn how to suckle. In the first week, I accompanied this process with reading to the child Treasure Island, one of the favorite stories from my youth. I had grown up watching the 1934 version of Treasure Island with Wallace Beery and Jackie Cooper. 
I wanted my child to have the courage of Jim Hawkins, but I think I might have ended up raising a Long John Silver. Parenthood is like that. Your intentions be damned. These kids will be who they will be. Accepting that is wisdom. I have never attempted to make my kids into a specific thing. I'm not a father who needs his children to follow in his footsteps or who lives through his children's successes and losses. I want them to become their own selves. My job is only to teach them how to think. If they can think, then they can reason. And if they can reason, then they can recognize wisdom. And if they can recognize wisdom, then they can become wise. The good father hopes his children become more wise than himself. The father succeeds when his wisdom becomes unwisdom for the wiser child. When my now 20-year-old Sonny was about eight, we had gone to church and heard someone giving a talk or bearing a testimony about God helping them with something very simple like finding their keys so they could get to a job interview. On the car ride home, I asked my children what they thought of God helping that person find their keys. At first, they all responded that it was nice that God would help them, but then I asked the follow-up question. You see, the first question on a quest for wisdom is never the question. The question is always to be found in the follow-up questions. So I asked, what of the people God doesn't help? What about someone who gets sick and dies? Or the person who goes missing and is never found? Or who prays for a war to end but dies in the war? Or who prays to get home from work safely but is killed in a car crash on the way home? What of the children who are kidnapped and pray to get home, but never get home? There are so many people who need prayers answered for more than just finding their car keys for whom God remains silent. What about them? My intention in this line of questioning was to expand my children's ideas about God, prayer, the difference between answered prayer and coincidence, between miracle and the common occurrence, and to ask themselves why God would help some people and not others. Sunny did think about all of those things, which eventually led her to become an atheist. I can't blame her, even if that was not my intention. When people say that God is mysterious, what they are actually saying is that none of us knows what the hell is going on. Those who claim to know are always more unwise than those who don't. The only real honest answer about anything metaphysical is, I don't know. A simple shrug of the shoulders would suffice. That type of honesty is mostly non-existent in Christianity. Christians really want to claim to know things. Knowing something without considering that there are other options that might be equally good or better is, to me, the greatest fallacy of any religion. And it often leads to hatred, violence, cruelty, and even genocide. Don't believe me? Just read the Bible. The Bible is a history of violence, xenophobia, extremist nationalism, racism, and superstition 
with a few messages about love and mercy sprinkled in for flavor, I study the Bible every day, usually in utter fascination that any of us believe it at all. That's the real miracle. I am a child of the universe. Within that identity is an earthling human father, husband, son, grandson, friend, musician, writer, photographer, Mormon, Christian, atheist, Gnostic, with the heart of a poet and the reverence of a proud sinner, someone who will pray in the chapel and then light a match to the church, a person who will tear it all down so we can build it back up, someone who is all of these things and none of these things, a person who is the thing but is not the thing, a dot in a vast array of interconnected dots, some of whom are my children. But you won't know them because they look like me or act like me or think like me. You will know them because they are loved by me above all the other dots in the universe. My children are the notes I always return to, the music that is always playing. They are the songs within my songs, the patterns within my patterns. The tunes that I am fluttering around like a butterfly witness, joyously observing and allowing the children to become their own selves. <laughs>